detective? Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Now Care More, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, Celestial Event, how it works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Bartleball, and today we have another episode of our podcast within a podcast, The Illustrated Fan, and I am joined by my co-host, Dave Becker. Dave, how are you today? I'm doing great, Nathan. Thank you. Hope you're doing the same. Yeah, I'm doing well. It's an overcast, rainy Sunday afternoon, but oh, uh, here all too. is well. All is yeah. well. We're, we're getting a lot of rain as well, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because um, you and I are really what? Only about an hour or a half or so apart from Not each too other, far. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Right. Not too far. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's yesterday. It started out rainy, then it got sunny and it gave you some hope. And then you wake up this morning and, yep, it's raining again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, we, we have like a, um, like a sunlight in the, in the adjoining bathroom. And you could hear that before you, like the minute in the morning, I can hear it tapping against the glass. I'm like, oh, perfect. Okay. It's before I've even had to yeah, look right. at anything and I already know know the score but no uh yeah i'm doing great and this is the second episode i just want to give a shout out to everybody who listened to the first episode who enjoyed the first episode who sent messages and just let us know uh it sounds like it was well received i know it was well received it was one of our uh, strongest episodes yet you know in terms of uh listenership and everything with phantom galaxy so uh and i really enjoyed it i had a great time bill uh, van vagel joined us for the last episode and uh, it was really good. It was it was fun to talk those movies. And so tonight, uh, Dave and I have a couple of movies we're going to talk about. We have a couple of short films to talk about. And uh, to start this with something we're probably going to try to do regularly and keep it uh, brief, as I was talking with Dave before this, brief, <laughs> even when I try to do capsule reviews, I don't always quite get there. But we're going to do a couple capsule reviews for some animated films that are relatively new new within the past month or so that are available either on streaming services uh some of them are available in the theater but they're also available on streaming so we're going to start with that then we're going to move to the short films and then we will do our two feature movies tonight so let's start with uh with the capsule reviews and dave i'll turn it over to you you have a a movie that is currently streaming on shutter and it is an animated film and i will let you tell us about the wolf house all right, The Wolf House from 2018. Uh, it's uh, produced in Chile. Uh, and it is about a young girl named Maria who escapes from a German religious cult and seeks refuge in an abandoned house. Once there, she befriends two pigs, uh, which also seem to be hiding out. But neither Maria nor her new friends are safe because there's a hungry wolf prowling just outside uh, and is ready to make a meal out of them all. Uh, 
uh, if he happens to uh, to get his uh, get uh, sink his teeth into any one of them. Um, it's stop motion, and it was co-directed by uh, Joaquin Koshina. Uh, so, uh, Koshina, um, uh, forgive me, I'm, I don't know the pronunciations, and Cristobal Leon. Uh, it was inspired by actual events. Uh, the, it's, it's as I mentioned, she's um, uh, Maria's escaping from a German religious cult, and it's um, the one that uh, she's fleeing. It's it's an actual based on an actual commune in central Chile, founded in 1961 by supposedly a former Nazi, Paul Schaefer, uh, and rumored to have uh, abused uh, some of its younger members. Members, so Mar- Maria is basically escaping abuse. Uh, that fact alone kind of brings a, a layer of intrigue uh, to the to the Wolf House, but it's the animation itself which has it's so imaginative, and it's not afraid to take the story in some dark directions. You know, you you have um, uh, Maria sort of um, merging with the walls, and 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 uh, you know it, it it moves from room to room in this house, and the pigs slowly morph. Uh, uh, you know, from pigs into, 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 into different beings. And it's just so imaginative. It's like, it's like Maria and her friends are one with the house and it just keeps you, you, you just, I loved that about it. I really loved that about the movie is, is that it just kept you watching and kept you in tune with what was going on. Um, uh, you know, you, you're just never quite sure what you're going to find when the action switches from, from one room to the next. And that's what I liked about it. It's a truly brilliant piece of work. And I definitely think you're, you're not going to want to miss it. I give it a 9.5 out of 10. I think it's one that's uh, that's definitely a high recommend. This is an amazing film. It's a, And it's only about 70 minutes long. It's only yeah, a, it's not a too hair long. over an hour. And, uh, and I remember I saw this shortly after you and I had made the decision to do this podcast. And I think I immediately I saw it and I was like, what did I just watch? And then after the second viewing, I texted you, Dave, and said, you need to find this movie and watch it. And then within about a week or two, I think it showed up on Shudder, fortuitously. And uh, it is is definitely something else. And because it's something else, I do think there's a possibility that there are people who aren't going to enjoy it. It is very visceral and strange. and dark. It's very and dark. dark. It is definitely dark. And it was hard because, and I guess for full disclosure, I did, uh, anyone who's heard the best horror of uh, 2020 episode on Phantom Galaxy knows that this was my number one horror movie of the year. I think for a couple reasons I mentioned on the show is that one, it's about the only movie this year that of, of, of horror style that actually gave me nightmares. It caused me to sort of be thinking about it so much that it showed up sort of subconsciously later on. And, and and that's partly too, because as you mentioned, Dave, the imagery is both very imaginative. It's very striking. It's very original. And it is very, at certain points, disturbing. And I don't mean disturbing necessarily. One thing I had to clarify in the podcast, uh, because I don't think I was explaining it nearly quite as well as you did is there, there's the implications of abuse. And as you do, as you as you look into the history of this place that she's fleeing, we do realize that it was most likely there was abuse of a lot of different nature, and you know, yeah. and but I think it would be safe to say that this movie doesn't feature any of that directly. No. It's like you're watching no. the psychological fallout from what that sort of abuse brings. Exactly, which- that's what it is. That's where the horror comes in. Is that it's it's Maria's um, psyche. 
Yeah. You know, it's almost like it's fractured and it's it's broken and that's what you're seeing. It's her perception more of what's going on around her. Yeah, it's like you see an innocent childhood that's been twisted and broken and in the fractures in between, all these different things are literally coming through, like yep. and climbing through and finding their way in and it's very unsettling. I'd say it's, you know, there are moments of this that give you the same feeling as watching something like a racer head. Uh, yeah, right. or <laughs> you're right. Like a Lynch, you know, some of Lynch's more out there stuff mm-hmm. or even, uh, some of the work of the, the stop motion artist who did the, I don't know if you ever see Alice, um, Swan, John Swanmaker. Yes. That, 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 that from, from the uh, late eighties, the, um, that, that version of Alice, the live, you have the live action, uh, young girl with all and- of the stop motion. Which is wow. made with taxidermied animals. <laughs> yeah, it's yes, really that, weird. You, you want to talk about, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's strange, but it's also really fascinating. It all takes place in, in a farmhouse. It's like Alice in Wonderland all set within a farmhouse. And yeah, and I, this movie feels like this one is a good, almost back to back with that one. If you can yeah. take it, you're going to be in a weird del- delusional state perhaps at the end. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But, but it's, but they're both um, really, they're both really good movies. Yeah. I agree with you. A 9.5 for me, uh, probably could over some time, you know, uh, give it a couple more viewings could even go on to be a 10. Cause I feel like while there's a lot of wild imagery here, there's a lot of nightmare. As you pointed out, there is something the movie is trying to say underneath of yeah. all of it. And yes. another interesting aspect is that the movie itself is almost presented like a propaganda film, like a fake propaganda, you know, that element of yeah. this is of propaganda created by the place she's running from. And right. so there's a lot of layers. You can tell these people put a lot of heart and work into it. So, yeah, I fantastic. It's on Shutter right now. I would definitely try to see it with the caveat that you probably know who you are. If you watch the trailer, you'll know if this is for you or not. My wife watched the right. trailer and said, nope. And because she knew, but I think if you're someone who loves imaginative, visually arresting movies, you've heard Dave and I talk about all the movies we talked about last time, uh, movies like Dark City and things like that, then you probably already are know that you want to see this movie. Yep. So on the flip side of that, (laughs) (laughs) so the, the, the yin and yang of a very, uh, imaginative and and probably divisive and non-commercial film that runs 70 minutes and really no longer than it needed to run. Uh, I have two movies that are much more on the big commercial end of things. And they're both, uh, both of them are in theaters currently and both of them, or one of them may have already had a small run and may no longer be in theaters, but they, they both are available in streaming. Uh, both of them are actually on HBO max right now, which has been, everyone's kind of aware has been releasing a lot of the high profile movies that fall into theaters. And these movies are, they're both animated. The first one is earwig and the witch, which is the latest movie from studio Ghibli who produced uh, all it really me as Hayao Miyazaki, who the director of spirited away and princess Mononoke and Nausicaa and Kiki's yeah. delivery service, all those beautiful movies. Uh, he almost was studio Ghibli, but he also hired a lot of different animators and storytellers. And there's a lot of other directors who've made very fine movies uh, and, and even great movies like whispers yeah. of the heart and grave of the fireflies that weren't Miyazaki, but Miyazaki uh, like you, Dave, you and I were talking, he kind of in a sense shut the studio down, you know, it still yes. exists, but a lot of the artists and talent that were on board are no longer there. Uh, this one is directed by son Goro Miyazaki called 
Erig and the Witch, based off of uh, the work by Diana Wynne Jones. And Diana Wynne Jones is the same author who wrote Howl's Moving Castle, which was one of Miyazaki's movies back yes. in 2004. And while it was also a really good one, I don't know that it was necessarily his best film, but it still no. had a lot of imagination. It's funny because Miyazaki's uh, Miyazaki's weakest film would be most animators' best film, and I I really liked Howl's Moving Castle, but I agree with you, it doesn't quite have the same elements that A Spirited Away or Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind or uh, even Castle in the Sky has, uh, but yet it's still damn good. It's a still it's a very good movie. And in general, I think that, yeah, that's definitely true of Miyazaki's films. I think all of his films. And in general, true of most of the studio uh, Ghibli movies as well. Even more recent ones like uh, When Marnie Was Here, which I think is also a good movie. I really liked When Marnie Was Here. Yeah, When Marnie Was Here is excellent. Yeah, and that's not a Miyazaki-directed film. That's just a Studio studio Ghibli movie, and it's excellent. Uh, Goro Miyazaki, his directed movies have actually been, my experience, have been the weaker ones. He did Tales from Earthsea, which was probably, mm-hmm. up until this point, one of the more disappointing. It, it it almost felt like it was trying to be a Miyazaki movie without quite the same momentum and right. uh, emotion that goes into it. I don't know if you saw that one, Dave. I, uh, I did, and the, you know what? It's interesting because I, I own Tales from Earthsea. I think I have all of the Studio Ghibli movies. Uh, it's the one I know I remember the least about. Yeah, that's me too. I'm I'm almost struggling to say too much about it because it's again all I kind of remember was that it it was trying to pull from Ursula K. Le Guin's like novel fi- fantasy novel, but there wasn't a lot going on in it. And then yeah. the same thing was true of uh, Up on Poppy Hill, which I think is another one he directed. It was more in the whispers of the heart, more of a realistic right. sort of romance story, and it. You know, they were they were fine movies. This one, based off of the the novel, feels very generic. And here's the other thing about it that I was excited about initially when I heard about it is that this was going to be their foray into CGI, and right. it deals with a little girl. Uh, her nickname is Earwig because her she has these two little pigtails that stick up and face each other, so they look just like the pincers on the top of an earwig. And she <laughs> is in an orphanage. And unlike most of these stories, it does have a Roald doll feel to it. But instead of being a case where she's, you know, sort of maligned and just downtrodden, she kind of almost runs the orphanage because she's able to uh, she kind of manipulates everybody and gets what she wants. And whether it's the cook or the other kids or the the women running the orphanage, you know, she's got it all in hand. And then she's adopted by this witch, Bella Yaga. Uh, it's funny because all of these stories seem to have a... a a Yo Baba or a Beliago yes. or, a, you know, it's all from that same sort of, it's weird because they, they borrow from the more like European tradition of the witches as opposed yes, to Kiki's Japanese delivery service. Tradition. Yeah. Kiki's delivery service is about that. Yeah. They're, they're always the European witches, which is strange because Japan, Japan does have quite a mythology of its own involving the witches. It's just that they tend not to be those characters. <laughs> that makes sense here with Wynne Jones coming from a British background, but right. uh, Bella Yaga also uh, it works in the, the house where she does her magic, and most of it is black magic, uh, is also inhabited by a demon named Mandrake, who primarily seems to use his demonic powers to send his minions out to gather up comfort food from pubs in the area and bring it to him at breakfast time. So he's got all this <laughs> demonic power at his, his fingertips, and he uses it to get shepherd's pie and, you know, 
cream chip <laughs> beef and things like that, which I understand. That's probably what I would do if I had demon powers too. I kind and, of know what else I would do with them. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> and those little touches like that are interesting, but this movie is CGI and it looks like you've taken that very vibrant style of Miyazaki and of Studio Ghibli and completely trapped it in this unexpressive stiff looking animation it's like they tried Mm -hmm. to make a pixar movie without fully understanding how pixar does what it does which is ironic because pixar you know in the beginning was inspired by miyazaki and by those films and so you here have someone imitating someone that was inspired by by them originally and it ends up just being kind of a mess the story's not Mm -hmm. that interesting earwig has one level one note she plays at which is she's trying to manipulate and learn the dark magic the witch doesn't want anything to do with her uh mandrake doesn't want to be bothered from reading his paper and and you know having his dinner and that's about it and it plays in this kind of vein uh for the whole movie even my kids were sort of bored with it because they were waiting for those moments i think you and i would agree that miyazaki one of the fascinating things isn't always just what's happening in the story although those can be very good it's the way the characters and the animation move in and out of the story you had said yes the movement of flight just the way when characters are moving there are scenes there are a couple scenes involving flight here and it just looks, it looks like the characters might as well be stones. You know, yeah. it's as if you took them and encased them. When I was a kid, I had these little uh, like Play-Doh factory things that you would put your, you could put something in there and put the Play-Doh around it. And it never looked like it was supposed to, it just came out like a blob, you know, I was right. supposed to have Han Solo, <laughs> but I had a Han Solo shaped blob. And that's what this is like. If feel if we could dig under this, there might be a, a studio ghibli movie under there but it, it's frustrating it's frustrating to the point that you actually you actively kind of get uh tired of the movie and you're you're just ready to turn it off my kids were and like that's, yeah which is a that's a, a shame because that's that's like an anti-studio uh, ghibli film yes. in a lot of ways because what they their strengths even the ones that miyazaki uh, did not direct but, you know, he produced and you could sort of feel his touch in all of them. And I, I'm talking about the tale of a uh, tale of Princess Cayuga and all of those movies. That's a great movie. Yeah, it really is because there's different animation in there. They're not it's not the same style of animation that you would see in a Miyazaki film. They're different. They tried they tried new things, but it's the characters and that warmth and um, and just the magic of them. I mean, if you think of something in, in Spirited Away and you were talking about Yubaba, the witch, She's not just the witch. I mean, yeah, she's she's the 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 nemesis. She's the um the villain, if you were, of the film. But yet there are times when she's not, and there are times when 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 her and and, and um uh, Chihiro, I think, is the name of the main character, yeah. um, uh, where she actually praises Chihiro. You know, when when she brings in that one spirit and gives it a bath, and it's like turns out to be a very powerful water spirit and. So there's there's def- there are layers to the characters. They're not written on one note. They're not. This is the hero. This is the bad person. This is these are the supporting characters. They all have. They all could be their own character in their own movie, and you could love them and hate them equally. And it's a shame that if, if his son is not quite reaching that level, and because in in, in the documentary you and I were talking about um, the Miyazaki documentary, um, uh, Never Ending Man that they showed he was getting into CGI a little bit with a short film. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't remember what that was. It was about an earthworm or something. And you can see that's happened here. The animation isn't bad, but if you were, if I showed it to you, you would say, Oh, they kind of look like 
Ghibli characters, but you would honestly probably think that this was one of those Netflix Netflix produced movies, maybe you know that that pops up and has been made by a smaller studio that's maybe a European or a Chinese production, and it's like the animation expertise and in terms of just rendering things looks good but it doesn't have any heart it doesn't have any Mm. energy uh even the nuance like what you were talking about with yobaba and how that witch character shows her nuances technically speaking this script for earwig and the witch has those where the witch is you know she's angry but occasionally she's supposed to it's more like you recognize she's supposed to be showing variants when she when she isn't exactly you realize that mandrake (laughs) is supposed to be a more compelling deeper character but it's kind of like what roger ebert said it's not what the movie is about it's how it's about it and this one isn't it they're they're clearly just trying to make a product and i've never really seen that from them before so it's disappointing it's not something they've done and it's a shame because um you know as we were talking um you know before we started here uh, studio ghibli lost a lot of their great artists when miyazaki shut it down when he said, okay, that's it, we're shutting down here. And it was truly Miyazaki, I think. I'm, I'm probably him and his partner who decided, okay, it, it's time to it's time it's time to end it. Um, and then when you watch Neverending Man, you realize that Miyazaki just doesn't he can't give it up. Even in retirement, he's thinking about making another movie. <laughs> yeah, and we'll definitely have some Miyazaki and Studio Ghib- uh, Ghibli movies coming up, particularly oh, because yeah. I don't want Earwig and the Witch to be the only one we ever No, yeah. Fully, no, it can't like, be. Yeah. Like, uh, officially reviewed on this show. I'm going to give it a four. Be- I mean, I know that seems kind of harsh, but uh, I will say this, that ultimately my kids stuck with it. They thought it was okay. If you were going to watch this and you want to, to to show a child an animated film. I mean, it's not awful, but the real kind of downer is if from the Studio Ghibli fan perspective, this is more like a, honestly, more like a three or something, you know? Uh, right. I'd say it's maybe a four in terms of it's a harmless enough, but I, I can't recommend it. I certainly can't recommend anyone go to the theater. Uh, even, even if we weren't risking... <laughs> You weren't risking anything except your time and money to see this movie. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, even even turning it on HBO Max, you're not going to miss anything if you don't, if you already have it. So uh, the that's, second movie. The, and I, that's depressing. It's it's sad. I'm sorry it, to hear that. I haven't seen it, but I'm sorry to hear that. It was the kind of deal where we watched it and we had only, we'd seen My Neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service. Um previously with my kids and, mm-hmm. and 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 castle in the sky all which are wonderful movies and after we watched this i about two days later i said i can't let you guys keep that image in your head that this is what the studio does so we watched mm-hmm. spirited away to wipe oh. that wipe that away completely. that's that's that is the masterpiece that is the masterpiece i think of of Hayao miyazaki if, if there's one film that you could that you could look at and say this is his best work. I think it's Spirited Away, and that's saying a lot when you look at his filmography. It was a lot of fun to watch that. I think previously, like mine, have always kind of vacillated between Spirited Away and uh, Princess Mononoke. But mm-hmm. watching the watching my kids watch it and what they got out of it, seeing them experience it, and maybe the same way I probably experienced The Wizard of Oz when I saw it for the first time, mm-hmm. I have to agree. I think that is his, his masterpiece. And it's I took my kids to see it uh, in the theater. It was out for one week back in two thousand two. I want to say it was, um, and I want I think it was in December of two thousand two that it was out just for a week. And I took my kids to see it. My kids at the time were six and three. So they were pretty young, and I had heard yeah. see it was PG, and they said there's some scary elements in it. Plus, it was two hours, 
it's a two hour movie. And I'm thinking, wow, this, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how they're going to react. They were mesmerized. They stood there staring at the screen the entire time. My youngest son sometimes would fall asleep in the movies. He was wide awake, both of them just mesmerized by what was going on. And, and, um, I took them, no, you know, it must've been before that. It might've been in October or something, um, or November that I took them because a few weeks later I took them to see Treasure Planet and which is an hour and 25 minutes. It's got a lot of zooming, you know, a lot of crazy things happening in that. And my youngest son fell asleep. My oldest son looked at me about halfway through and said, are we going home soon? It just didn't (laughs) get, it just didn't grab them the way that Spirited Away did. And you can kind of get that. I think that's partially because now I will say this. I actually am a fan of Treasure Planet and I like a lot of what it does. I want to look at it again because I I love Treasure Island is my all-time favorite book. I love Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Um, so I was really anxious to see the movie and I, I, I have to see it again because I don't think I've seen, I did review it on the blog at one point. So I did see it after that, but it's been some years since I've seen it and I would like to check it out again. Yeah. To me, the, the benefit of that when all the space stuff kind of is silly, but it's what they do. I think they do a nice take on the long John silver character. Mm. Uh, they make him a cyborg and the voice was, work. Was that, um, Brian Doyle Murray voiced that I believe. Did he? He may have. I, I'm not I sure remember. if he was. I'm not sure if he was Long John Silver, but he voiced. Well, he voiced one. Maybe I'm mistaking it. Um, yeah, I think someone else. else did. Uh, but I don't remember exactly. But I do remember thinking that yeah, they kind of nailed that character. And I love Treasure Planet too, so that's why. I mean, Treasure Island as well, and that is why I kind of uh, I think gravitate towards it because I thought of all the things they got right. If you got to get one thing right, it might as well be Long John Silver. You know, yeah, he's right. not. He's not fully the villain. Uh, again, that nuances we talk about. He's all, he's mm-hmm. the anti-hero, really, in a sense. You know. Oh, he's it was Brian Doyle Murray. It was Brian Doyle Murray who, who was did it really? That's... Silver. Yes, it was. I need to go back then and watching it because he even has a little bit of an accent and everything in that. Um, I don't think I ever fully realized that, Dave. So now I want to. Go I got to go back and <laughs> I got to see if I got to see if it's the same voice he did for um, uh, that character in SpongeBob. Who was it? Yeah. The, uh, the 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 the, right. the ghost. I think it okay. kind of is because it has that, you know, he's like, oh, let's have a little bit of palaver and stuff like that. So it's, uh, <laughs> that's amazing. I got to go back and rewatch it now with that in mind. I didn't, I, I don't think that I realized that was Brian Doyle Murray, Murray. So anyway, the, I will keep this very short, although I do, I know last time Greg Bench left us a very uh, awesome and long email, uh, not email, excuse me, that he left us a, a great voicemail. And it, one of the things he talked about was say, hey, when Tom and Jerry comes out, can you guys review it? And it's sure enough, this weekend it did come out. And in fact, and now finally we're reporting box office numbers again. I guess that means c- civilization is sort of coming back to some semblance. Nice. Well, that, uh, that, I mean, that makes me happy. That makes Yeah, me happy. it's not. It, I mean, now we're looking at the second best opening uh, uh, in the in the past year or so was this movie. Uh, for, since the summer, I think, and it was only thirteen million dollars, but still, wow. you know, it's the second best since I think Wonder Woman. So uh, this is Tom and Jerry, and it is the it's animated. Some of it is a lot less than I would like, uh, but it's animation integrated with live action, and it brings back the classic cat and mouse dynamic. The two characters that have that long history we talked about last time of beating the crap out of each other over what like hundreds of short little short cartoons uh this movie is directed by tim story 
the one thing I was happy about when I first saw it's because I know in 1993 they did a Tom and Jerry movie and they chased each other for two minutes. Then they both realized they could speak and became friends and went on a journey to help a sick girl, uh, which at that point I checked out. And <laughs> I don't remember anything about that, except I do believe it was pretty terrible. So the one thing I can say for Greg and others out there that are, are wondering, does it retain the Tom and Jerry they grew up with? As far as the characters go, yes, they look exactly the way you would expect them to. And within two minutes, they were beating each other with with rocks and their heads were getting sunk into their shoulders. And Tom had a demon cat and an angel cat on his shoulders. Like you remember. <laughs> and, and Jerry is there, you know, I, I, I don't know if kids know what panhandling is, but they're panhandling within about two minutes of this movie. And Tom does get run over by real cars. And of course, none of this looks realistic. It looks exactly like you would expect. There is the bulldog character. That's always eyeing up, you know, is going to punch mm-hmm. Tom in the head and, uh, Jerry is trying to get one over. And so they, they are still rivals. They're still doing their shtick. And all of that's fine. You also realize that that is really only supported for, what, about five minutes of entertainment before you have to turn around to do it all again, unless you give them something else to do. This movie decides not to give them anything else to do. And instead, it introduces uh, Chloe Grace Moretz and Michael Pena and Colin Jost and a whole cast of, of actors in a story about a girl who basically scams her way into a wedding planning job at a big ritzy hotel in New York for a rich couple who's come to prominence on social media. You know, isn't that exactly what you want to see from a Tom and Jerry movie, Dave? Uh, 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 you know what? Uh, uh, you told me that. I didn't see this film. So although that that caveat there, I did not see it. Um, but when, when you mentioned that, it just reminded me of when I took my kids to see the Crocodile Hunter movie in the early 2000s, yes, exactly where you you want to see a movie about the Crocodile Hunter. He's in a decent portion of it, but most of it is about this um, satellite that la- and these governments that are trying to recover this satellite. What? That, why would they, they? For some reason, they feel as if the characters that, that, that are in, on TV, they're not going to support a full-length movie, so they've got to put this other story in there to make to justify it being a, a feature-length movie. But nobody cares. Nobody went there to see that. They went to see The Crocodile Hunter. They're going to see Tom and Jerry. They don't care about these other stories. And it's a weird thing because clearly the Tom and Jerry segments are exactly that. You have Tom and his little butler hat. You have the little gang of cats that would always harass him every once in a while. And Mm -hmm. so these people clearly know what you would expect from the Tom and Jerry thing. This is like making a Flintstones movie about real estate scams or a Star Wars movie about (laughs) trade disputes. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, right. That happened, right. (laughs) That's right. As a recent Scooby-Doo movie was a superhero Marvel-style movie. You know, I don't know. Right. Uh, And people are seeing these. If you like Tom and Jerry, you're really going to be stretched thin. I did talk to uh, Dave Whitebread and I were talking back and forth, and he really did like this. He liked Tom and Jerry. He felt they got the characters right. I do agree with him on that. However, for me, that that other plot that Chloe Grace Moretz, the problem is she really is trying to give it her, her best shot here. She has a kind of comedic timing where she's really trying to act in the same movie with the cat and the mouse. By the way, no explanation why there are animated animals running around like that is never even remotely touched <laughs> not even in a in a in a way to say oh you know what do we do about these animated things for all that we know they don't realize they're animated you know it's very bizarre because you feel like there'd at least be something but right that i that i can give but the rest of the movie seems ridiculous it, it again they bring her in 
she's trying her best. They don't give her much to do. It seems like the most of the movie is just so the cinematographer can shoot close-ups of her her calves, which look nice. But I mean, you know, against Tom, Jerry walking around the background, I'm seeing a lot of her ankles for some reason. Uh, <laughs> but to me, it's not. It it doesn't work. It. Even my kids, one 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 child fell asleep, and the other one said, "We should have watched that Disney movie about the superhero squirrel." So, the, <laughs> apologies, Greg, uh, Dave, uh, Dave Whitebread. I recognize that that you enjoyed it, and I will put out there that you know I think if you really are the Tom and Jerry fan, and you just really want to see these guys doing what they 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 used to do, they do it here. But I don't know. I would have much preferred to watch a even an hour or an hour and ten minute movie where you gave ten or eleven skilled animators or animated storytellers the free reign to make their own Tom and Jerry short. I mean, you know, almost like a Parisia Tem or New York I Love You, Tom and Jerry I Love You. You know, I would have watched that. Sure, absolutely, I, I agree. And and I'm a, I'm I love Chloe Grace Moretz is awesome. I think she's great. I usually like a lot of her movies, and I think she's great in them. Um, but I don't know what she can possibly bring to a Tom and Jerry movie. She tries you know? here and I I will give her, uh, she deserves this. She's in a movie out right now and you can get it on streaming and things like that called shadow in the clouds. It's a movie where she is in a world war one bomber plane and she's down in the, uh, the, the, the bottom turret of the, of the plane for almost the entire movie. And she's trapped in there with a gremlin on the wing of the plane and oh, wow. the movie's a ton of fun she's very very good in it it's a uh, pg-13 so it's maybe not quite the same uh audience as this film you know <laughs> you know right. not quite the same young kids audience um but it's a lot of fun i definitely recommend that one and she's good in it this one Again, um, I, I was talking to one of my relatives yesterday at FaceTime, and they were saying, hey, if you, if you end up watching that Tom and Jerry movie, you might want to pick up some knitting or something. So I think that about sums it up. This is, again, for me, I, it's a 4.5. It may be higher for people who just really want to see these characters, but why not watch the old cartoons? Right. So that's... Uh... That's uh that makes so us capsule clean. reviews. Yeah, capsule we, 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 reviews, right? We're gonna we'll have to work on this capsule review <laughs> idea because <laughs> very true. Um, let's talk about our short films. Uh, Dave, do okay. you want to kind of cue those up because you had brought these up last time? I had never seen either one of them, and uh, I do want to give them their due because they are they're well worth talking about. Yes. Okay. Well, the first one uh, is uh, uh, from 2004. It's called Ryan. Uh, was directed by Chris Landreth, and uh, it's about uh, an animator. His name was Ryan Larkin, uh, who in the late sixties and early seventies he was on the top of the, he was on top of the world. He had two of his shorts were nominated for Academy Awards, and he was uh, a rising star at the Canadian National Film Board. Uh, then um, drugs and alcohol entered the picture, and uh, three decades later, uh, Ryan Larkin was destitute. He was begging for money on the streets of Montreal. Uh, this is a 14-minute animated short based on an interview that director Chris Landreth conducted with Ryan Larkin. The audio recording of that interview makes up a large part of the movie's uh, dialogue. Uh, they're discussing his past work, uh, the people he used to know who also pop in from time to time, and the reasons why his career fell apart. The visuals on display here, to describe it, it's, it's, it's a little difficult to do. The idea is 
It's it's almost as if you know I want to I want to describe them, and I'm looking at my review here because I, I did reviews from the blog, and what I said was um, the one uh, word that continually popped into my head as I was trying to describe it was beautiful, though in reality it's anything but that. Um, the animation that that Landreth, um, Chris Landreth employs throughout this uh, is jarring. Uh, what it is is you're seeing the people, you're seeing Ryan Larkin, you're even seeing Chris Landreth. It's almost as if you know the look of them, they're they're damaged. It's almost like you see the trauma that they experience through life. And Chris Landreth even lays that out at the beginning. He's pointing out these holes in his head and these scratches on his face and saying, this I got in this year and this is from that year. And then you see Ryan Larkin. He's even more so. He's almost skeletal with half of his face gone. And you realize that what Chris Landreth is showing you is the trauma. You're seeing the trauma of, of these people. And what's really something is, and, and where you pick up on it is there's a scene later in the movie where, um, uh, you know, Ryan Larkin and, and he's, he's reintroduced to Felicity Fangio, who was a, a collaborator of his back in the day. Um, and as Ryan Larkin says, it's like the, the love of his life. He looks at her at one point and says, we should have had children. And uh, she laughs and says, oh, it just wasn't meant to be. And and Ryan grabs her hand and says, I still love you. You see him fill out. You see him become more of a whole person. And it's just very interesting that there's that. You're seeing these, these damaged people, you know, Ryan and Chris Landreth. And um, what's really something is, is, as I said, this is based on interviews that he gave. And, and um, you know, Chris Landreth is just very, he lays it out for Ryan Larkin. He says at one point, I want to see you get back to work. I, I can't wait to see what you're going to do because Ryan Larkin has been living on the streets. He's home, you know, he's, he's basically panhandling. He's trying to beg for money at this point in his life. Um, but then Chris Landreth uh, uh, talks to him about his alcohol. He said, I want to see you give up alcohol. I want to see you thrive. And Ryan Larkin does not have a good reaction to that suggestion. He becomes very angry. And you see that in the movie, um, his reaction to it. And then Chris Landreth even says at one point, why did I even bring this up? But what's so cool, and I've seen this now several times, are the little things that he puts in. Because when Chris Landreth brings it up, a light over his head, almost like a halo, like I'm doing a good thing by doing this for Ryan. And then you just see that halo switch off and fall off his head when Ryan Larkin blows up at him. Um, there's so much happening. It's just so, um, so many layers to this movie. And it's about 13 minutes that you have to watch it several times. It's about one animator talking to another animator about his life's work. And you see clips from Ryan Larkin's past movies. Even there's a scene where, um, where Chris Landers shows him a drawing, you know, from one of those movies. And Ryan Larkin's like, oh my God, you got it. You got one of these original drawings that I did way back in the day. And um, talking to the to his collaborators and learning about his trauma and learning about Chris Landreth's trauma. It's such an interesting film. And it's one of those ones that I can sit down and watch it pretty much every day and find something new in it. And this was my first time for watching it. I don't know how I missed this one. It came out in 2004, like you said, and it also won the best uh it, it, the oscar for best animated short film yep. the year that it came out in 2004 and i had never seen it i wasn't even that familiar with ryan larkin uh i had heard his name thrown about and as is pointed out in the short film as chris lander says early on you know he was kind of a big 
deal for a short period of time there in the world of animation decades earlier, really. And that what I think is so interesting about this film is if this had been Chris Landreth sitting down and just talking to Ryan Larkin and showing him and looking over the drawings, I still think it would have been effective and interesting. You know, I still think there would have been poignancy there, Mm -hmm. but not like what happens in this film. This is one of the most amazing animated films I've ever seen. And as you pointed out, Dave, I think, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of short film wise. It's one of the best I've ever seen. I, I feel like it, because of the way it uses animation to create this world the only thing I would have that would have probably been similar at this point in time in 2004 would have been mm-hmm. about two years earlier when Richard Linkletter did Waking Life and oh, yeah. he animated over and he he was kind of these people having philosophical discussions and he was animating these philosophical worldviews sort of spilling out as these people are talking. And that movie had, you know, it did the rotoscoping. Yep. Uh, it 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 did it in a in a more sophisticated way than someone like Bakshi had done it previously. And it was very imaginative. I, I, I like that movie a lot too, but here Larkin kind of looks at that style. He takes that style and he takes something else. This feels he's using animation, CGI animation with the tone and look of traditional hand animation to create a world that looks like a world you'd see in a science fiction film you know it does Uh, yes the world these characters inhabit even though they're here you know these are some of these are street people or have at least experienced that kind of life in fact we'll talk about that a little bit when we get to his other movie you know what what ryan um larkin has been through you hear that in his voice, but then it's visualized. Like you said, you look like you're looking at some post-apocalyptic world. The, the, the Larkin character is so desiccated in his soul or in his, like you say, you're looking at his trauma. He's been so beaten down internally that he's almost nothing left. It looks like the only thing I could think of were the robots in the uh, Steven Spielberg AI movie, the ones that are at the, the the flesh fair that have been beaten and broken so much that only the faces are remaining and you see the connectors that hold it to the frame you know that's what ryan larkin visually looks like in this movie and yet i thought it was such a brilliant stroke to do that because like you say it gets kind of intense and there's a lot of pain in what he's saying yes and definitely i think landra finds a way to to have the pain in the service, but he's constantly reminding you of who this guy was, where he's been through. And it's, it, it's again, it's generating a certain amount of empathy for him, even while he's kind of destroying himself at the moment that, that Larkin or that Landreth is interviewing him. That the fact that they are able to bring his art into the film though, I think is also kind of brilliant. You get to watch whole chunks of his animated films, the ones that he was so proud of. And yes. uh, I just, like the amount of detail and the amount of emotion that goes into it. It's like a perfect marriage of that to me for something that, uh, again, there's a very real raw nerve underneath of it. Um, I, I was so impressed with this. That was a 10 out of 10 for me. Cool. I'd, I'd have to say 10 out of 10 as well. I mean, it was, it's funny because both of Ryan Larkin's films in the late sixties, early seventies were nominated for best for Academy Awards. They didn't win it. This wins the Academy Award about Ryan Larkin. Yeah, and it's like you mentioned that one scene where he says, "Oh, you you have one of the originals." And yes. And like you said, that kind of almost a moment of of like 
emotional perfection, like you say, when he fills out, like when he talks, like you could hear it in his voice, yeah. but Lark, but, but Landreth illustrating that in a visual way, like you said, the light going off the halo and suddenly it looks like it's a busted halogen ball. Right. You know, right. <laughs> you watch the air go out and how many times we've ever tried to do that for someone be, you think you're being selfless and you've, you're, you're trying to help someone and all you did was open a new wound. And so, right. Um, yeah, so fan, fantastic. I loved it. And then, you know, the other cool thing about it is it suddenly kind of puts a spotlight on, on, uh, Larkin again. Right. Yes. And it's yes. so he comes back and he, even though I think you had mentioned last time, you know, he didn't get to finish this film because he died of cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are people who stepped in and sort of helped finish it, but this is, um, this is spare change and it's not nearly as long as, ryan is it's what about five minutes five, i think i think seven minutes. maybe seven minutes seven yeah. minutes with credits yeah yeah so it's not it's not very long and it is definitely more it's obviously in larkin's style uh because it's not completely finished there is a sort of weird sort of uh feeling of it not of of being different halves you know the first half very much has Larkin there discussing and talking about kind of documenting, you know, he's trying to document and give you a, a window and eat humorously in some ways to what it is to be a street person, to yes. be sort of so focused on the concept of your life is run by, can I even get changed to do anything today? You know, to, to mm-hmm. even kind of continue surviving and what would I be willing to do that ideas of my art, of my career, of having this life, they're so far from me. You know, and he yet he does it with an almost sardonic quality in the earlier parts. You know, the point where he tells him, he goes, I don't know if it's ethically right for a bum to try to bum money from another it, it, bum. Right. It's not right for a bum to bum from a bum. I don't think that's, uh, that's ethically sound. And so that kind of stuff, it's a gallows kind of humor, but it's a humor nonetheless. And then you get some of the vibrancy of his art. I think what happens, though, is when he passed, they wanted to honor him, but it becomes very much, I think it tries to become an ode to his work without stepping on his toes. So no one is trying to create, you know, they're not trying to guess at what creative vision he was trying to complete there. And it, 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 it loses a little, but I still think it's pretty fascinating and it's just a kind of triumph in itself that it exists. You know? Yes. That's what I even said that I had reviewed this on the blog and I said it, uh, what what Ryan Larkin went through, the fact that spare chains exist at all is a minor miracle. So you, you, I appreciate, but I didn't like the second half. What happens is I think it was his producer, uh, who's also a musician, um, almost made like a, uh, uh, introduced the music, uh, her band, uh, Chihuahua, uh, feature song, do it for me. And it plays over snippets of some of Larkin's earlier animations and drawings is what the second half of it was. And I think that was introduced after he passed away, obviously. He did not get a chance to finish this. And and it's such a shame when you look at back on Ryan and then the, to realize that he was probably dying at that time. He probably had the lung cancer at that time and just didn't know it. Um, and then he realized that when he finally gets back to work and he creates, um, you know, spare change. I really liked the first part of this, you know, it's not even quite like the animation that he was doing earlier on. It was a little bit different and he's drawing from his life on the streets and he goes to heaven and he goes to hell and <laughs> there's just a lot to it. There's, there's an energy to it, you know? Um, 
Yeah, he's like, where are I, you working? Oh, in front of St. Peter. <laughs> in front of St. Peter, right. There he is in front of St. Peter. <laughs> um, and then when it gets to that song, it just doesn't have the same energy. But I think that was maybe a tribute. That was more like continuing along and maybe showcasing her band a little bit at the same time. But it's not Ryan Larkin at that point. Even though it's featuring some of his work, it's not Ryan Larkin. It doesn't have the character and the energy of the first half of of the film. But again, it's only seven minutes. And the fact that it exists at all is is awesome. So I think it's worth checking out as well. So what would, uh, rating-wise, what would you give this one, Dave? I'd probably come in at, you know, I'm going to say an eight. Might be a little generous. It's probably more around the seven range, um, you know, with the second half of it. But I'm going to say an eight just because it's Ryan Larkin's last movie. And I didn't know anything about him until I saw Ryan uh, when I reviewed it um, for the blog. And yet he became a fascinating character to me. And I thought it was a little sad that he had passed away after finding, sort of regaining his muse and making something new. Uh, But at least we got something. At least we got something new from him. So yeah, I I would say probably uh, an eight. Yeah, I think seven for me, it's strong. There's a little bit of some anger and some uh, sarcasm bubbling up under there, but also based off of real experience. Like you said, his animation style originally, it's this, this is different. It's it's scragglier, it's raggedy, It's it bears the weight of what has happened between the last time he made a film and then this one. And then the second half is buoyant and vibrant, and it's it's trying to put the positive spin on it, which is fine, but they just they just feel like different pieces of a thing, which they, they are, do. you know, they are what much they could do about it. But yep. um, they're both worth seeing. I'll put the links for them in the show notes, and I'm going to put the links to Larkin's earlier films too uh, there as well. So, um, so we're going to move from that to uh, we're going to talk two movies that are uh, to me that we we. We'll be talking anime, I think, many times throughout the show, obviously. And we already spoke a little bit earlier. Uh, When it comes to anime, I think I said last time, Dave, I'm not necessarily, I'm not a rabid fan. I don't watch many uh, or really, I I haven't seen very many of the series at all. I had people who showed me things like Cowboy Bebop and Evangelion back in the day, but I haven't really kept up. Uh, And in fact, I'm not a person that seeks out every animated film. However, I do think there's a lot of very great, work that's done within the genre that people who sort of hear the word anime and see a very specific set of images in their head or or expect a very specific thing are you know whether that be kind of packaged kid stuff or maybe stuff that's too adult you know i don't i i think that it's important to remember there's a lot of great art and a lot of great films that do exist within that style yeah i agree with you i mean i'm not an expert in um in anime either I mean, I'd seen um, Akira, you know, many years ago. Um, and um, of course, Miyazaki, who we've already talked about. And uh, I also um, had, remember the sequence in Kill Bill Volume 1, where this the backstory of o- Orenishi, uh, you know, that character, which was, which was in an anime style. So I didn't have a lot of experience with anime, but in recent years, I've been really getting into a lot more of it. And enjoying it. I mean, there's a lot of different films out there. And some of them, you know, we might talk about Oko's In, which came out a couple of years ago, which is really pretty cool. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Penguin Highway. A lot of those films that I would have not seen before, I'm actually watching more of now and I'm enjoying them. And especially the filmmaker we're going to be talking about here tonight. 
Yes, and I agree with you. And it's a similar kind of thing. Like when I was younger, I saw some of those movies and, you know, I'd see pieces of as a kid and then I would catch them later, Akira being one of them. And of course, then the Miyazaki films. And as early 2000s, you were getting a lot of animation coming from lots of different places, primarily Japan, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a lot of that being the anime. And there there were a lot of different titles. And in somewhere in that mid-2000s range, you had an artist kind of come up uh, who, who started to establish himself. His name was Makoto Shinkai. And we're talking about two of his films now tonight. One of them is Your Name. And then the second one is Weathering With You. And Weathering With You uh, is really very recent. It was released at least in uh, U.S. theaters here la- about uh, around this time last year in the January, February time frame. Mm-hmm. It was one of the few movies I caught before everything kind of closed down due to COVID. And this, uh, Your Name was released in 2016. And he has done many short films. He's done many feature-length films as well. One of the very first ones I ever saw was uh, a called Voices of a Distant Star, which is a science fiction movie that involves, you know, the us- some of the usual uh, Japanese anime tropes like armored mechs and alien worlds and star-crossed love. And yet it does it in such an interesting way. You feel like you're watching and like a Ray Bradbury story come to life. You know, there's a magical right. realist sense to what Shinkei does. And so we're going to start with your name. I'll go ahead and set this one up. And it, plot wise, it feels kind of light and airy when it starts out. You have uh, Mitsua Miyamizu, who's a, she's a high school girl and she's living in one of these uh, like rural prefectures of Itamori, you know, and her town is very uh, rural. She lives out in the uh, countryside, her father is running for uh, office, a political office, and her her grandmother is there. There's kind of a, a dispute between, you know, the grandfather isn't sort of honoring the traditions and customs that they came from. The mother has passed on, and he is primarily concerned with his political career. All of this is just a little background because... During this time, she just wants to leave the town and she kind of inadvertently just wishes and says, oh, you know, I wish I could be. She says, you know, I wish I could be a Tokyo boy and get out of here. And then the element, the sci fi or magical realist element of the story kicks in and she finds out that she is switching bodies with exactly that. A high school boy who's in Tokyo and they don't even know it's happening at first. Uh, the way the movie is shot, or, or not shot, the way the movie is created is very interesting because you have her going to school and people are making comments like, what was with you yesterday? Why did you show up without your hair brushed? And you were being awfully uh, cheeky to the teacher and you didn't show up for this and you did this and you didn't seem like yourself at all. And then the movie sort of switches and introduces us to Taki, who is the boy whose body Mitsua is swapping places with. And he is, he's kind of slow to pick up on it as well. He's sort of getting the better end of the deal though, because when she's in his body, she's making him look good. She is showing his sensitive side to the girl who he, his coworker Miki, who he likes. And when she's there, she's sort of improving his life. And everyone just thinks she's crazy or possibly possessed when he's in hers. And it takes them a little while to figure this out. They're writing messages back and forth in notebooks. And they start to try to form some ground rules. They're not exactly sure why this is happening or when it's happening. 
Keep your hands to yourself when you can. Now, strangely enough, uh, Taki has a little more of a problem with that than she does. Every morning when he's in her body, the her little sister comes in and wants to know why she seems to be groping herself, which is maybe the <laughs> one weird element of this movie that is my, my kids were asking questions about that. Uh, he, he seems that that's a very odd element. However, as the story goes on, they start to learn about each other's lives and they gain respect, which builds into friendship. And then, you know, as it's starting to build anything else there, it just goes radio silence on Mitsuha's end that suddenly Taki can't hear her anymore. It's not that he can't even hear her because they were communicating across phone. There are no text. She's not receiving any of his texts anymore either. And he starts to try to figure out what's going on. He he finally gets to a point where he wants to go look for her. He's concerned, and he's also realizing that he has feelings for her. When he gets his friends to go and look for the, he's drawn pictures in, in his uh, notebook, so he has images of the shrines and things like that. And when he goes looking for this place, he cannot find this town. And this story gets very strange at this point. I don't want to go too much further. And I don't even know if we want to go any further than that, Dave. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't take it any further. Than, I wouldn't take it any further than that either. But um, you know that, that what it is about this this film, and it, we'll get into it a little bit when we talk about weathering with you as well, uh, is that one of the things that I really like about uh, Shinkai's work is that it's it's beautiful. First off, you can tell. I mean, he he, had, he mentioned in a, an interview that I saw with him. Uh, he's talked about Studio Ghibli shutting down, how he hired some of the writers to come over and work with him. And you see that in this movie. You see that level of animation in your name. It's beautiful. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous motion picture. Uh, but it also, it, it's telling a fantastic tale. It's fantasy about these two characters switching places. But it's, it's keeping it sort of grounded in a reality as well. You know, with with them living their lives, even though this this thing is happening, and you get that again in in the second movie to a degree, that these amazing things are happening. It's grounding it in a reality that they're still dealing with things that their kids their age would deal with, until it hits that gut punch. I mean, it is a punch in the gut. The middle of this film when it gets to that revelation, but it's not over yet. But and and you're still going to be. You go through such a range of emotions. With, with this film, I mean, you are, I mean, this movie, it lifts you way up. It lifts you way up high, uh, you know, on on the on emotional scale. And then it crashes you down. It brings tears to your eyes. You are invested in the characters. They're real. They're, they're living in this fantasy, but they're very real characters. It's one of the few films that put that, because of that, it's on a level with Miyazaki. Because it's the characters in this fantastic world, uh, all of them melding together and just creating an amazing story. And it is uh, the, the twists and turns in this film is not, it's not something that you're going to see coming in. And it's a little complex the way that it's presented. Like you were saying, Nathan, the way it's presented at the beginning, you don't know what's going on. They're waking up. And, and this was my second time watching it. And I didn't remember how he tied it in and made it as, as understandable. Like you can keep up with this, you know, what's going on. Throughout this movie, you you're you're in tune with the story, but yet it starts in a way where you're absolutely confused, you're baffled, you don't know what's happening, you don't know why these two we're watching these two characters, why are they important? 
until then it ties it in and they they have that sort of where they have that the realization at the same time we're switching bodies and then it takes it from there um absolutely uh, it really is a masterstroke it's a it's a masterpiece i think um in in uh, uh in anime and it's one of the few that is in the conversation i think with miyazaki yes i agree uh, completely about that that compares with miyazaki and in fact it's almost fair to say that it doesn't even need to be a comparison because I think what Shinkei is doing is so specific to himself that he's just another master alongside Miyazaki. You know, yes, a lot of these, I think, animators and anime maybe do stand in the shadow, but I don't think his work does at all. And it it brings a different nuance. And one of the things I really love about his work, uh, and I'm curious if you felt the same way, is, and you kind of alluded to it, the level of detail, and I just mean don't mean just detail in where things are placed, but he animates things in such a way with so many specifics of real life that you sit there and you feel like you're looking through a camera. You know, I mentioned, oh, the shot changes and things like that. It, it feels for all the world like it has been captured with a camera. And you're looking, one of the things I love is so much of, and you see the rural world here. But in both this movie and Weathering With You and some of his other films, he finds the beauty in the big bustling metropolises. He finds the beauty in Tokyo, finds the beauty in eating a hamburger at a fast food joint, <laughs> right. the beauty in, uh, you know, walking through crowded streets and having to get on the, the light rail. You know, those scenes are as picturesque and as tranquil and beautiful in their own way as anything you would have in the Miyazaki films of the flowing fields and the beautiful lush vegetation, you know, he finds the beauty urban landscape in the same way that, that the others find it in the, in the more rural and uh, earthy uh, worlds. And I love that about it, but storytelling wise, it's fascinating. It's a great story and it's told with a lot of imagination and energy and the shifting tones. There's a lot of tones of humor here, there's some tones of, of of darkness and of urgency. And you, like you said, you're up high and then you're down and then you're not sure where it's going next. And uh, but it's what a what a great ride. And yet it still uses all of those things that people would turn their nose up. You know, oh, it's a it's a cute love story between a guy and a girl and there's pop music and they get to know each other a little bit at a time. And sure, that kind of describes it, but not where it ultimately goes. No, not not even at all. I mean, that's that's like the the, the absolute basis description of it, yes. um, because that that that's maybe uh, that's not even a surface. That's that's like a, you know, if, if you're talking a surface, yeah, that's the surface. But then you've got like the depths of the ocean underneath that, as far as the complexity and the depth and just everything that is that that is infused into this film. Uh, it's it I I don't I don't even know what more I can say. It's really just a masterpiece. It really is. I mean, this made my uh, this made one of my top films the year that yeah, um, it was it was released here because it was just staggering to me. It was absolutely staggering that that and even that that little town of Itamora, you get to know it. You get to you get to like you feel as if you're a part of that town, and you you get to know not just the characters but the town itself. You know, walking the streets and everything, it, it takes on a life of its own. Uh, and, and of course, in, in Tokyo, which I don't know that Miyazaki made too many movies set in Tokyo. I don't know that he made any movies no. set in Tokyo. 
Very um, rarely did he capture the city at all. Yeah, it wasn't very often. And 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 I can't even think of an example, to be honest with you. I'm sure there are some, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. But the way that even Tokyo is, is um, animated in this film, gorgeous and vibrant and alive. You know, that it's not just that you're, what you're looking at is beautiful. It's drawing you in and you feel as if you're there. Like you're actually in this, this, uh, this town. Um, like you're saying, it could have been, it could have been shot on film and, and, and it gives you that same uh, feeling, that same, that same oneness with just everything about the movie. I get, you know, I'd say 9.5. It probably won't, you know, I feel like a, maybe eventually it will be a 10. It's a, uh, it's a movie I probably need to see one more time. I want to say too, you know, we talk about the YA and the young adult sort of subgenres and how that sometimes has gotten a, it becomes a, a dirty word for some because it just kind of puts them in a specific sort of section where we're not expecting much from them, just like anime, right. you know? Yes. And yet I think this is a wonderful young adult story. This is the young adult done exactly the way you'd want to see it. And I would say that Chinke even is so deft and and gentle with his touches that for the most part even younger audiences can watch this one i do suggest a little bit of caution because though honestly outside of that one moment i don't think there was anything else of a a a risque nature but just the fact that he you know he can't seem to stop himself by feeling up this body he ends up in (laughs) it's a very strange kind of thing you know i i don't know how you felt about it but it was that one because there was so little of that anywhere else it, yeah. it, it kept hitting a weird tone for me. It, it did. I think it was in there for humor because even at a very um, <laughs> emotional moment for the yeah. character, he's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, but I, I think the problem comes in is that point you're so established that he has such respect and care for this person that it's, it's, like, it's it just doing? feels yeah. a little, yeah. yeah. And, and the fact that um, uh, they have a, I, I, again, I don't want to go too deep into it, but I really liked how they had a scene between the two of them. When you realize that, you know, where the story yes, goes, that you might not ever get that, but how they did it and how they showed that between them. And she actually chastises him. <laughs> that is that, that is true. That's the redeeming part there is it does eventually get to. Uh, but, yeah, it's a wonderful movie. Uh, what is your rating on this one, Dave? I'd say 9.5. And I think, uh, like you, I reserve the right to eventually increase it to a 10 um, because, I've seen it twice and it's even better the second time. It grabs you just as just as hard the second time as it did the first time. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And so that that again was like 2016 and I think maybe it was released here in stateside around 26 2017. 2017 uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, that's when I saw it and uh then this again in 2019 and into 2020 we had weathering with you and do you want to set that one up for us absolutely just this one i just saw i just saw weathering with you for the first time so basically the story is about um this the, a young boy uh, i guess he's uh, 16 years old uh, uh morishima is his name and he we, he runs away from what we assume is is a bad uh you know home life uh in his town he run, goes to tokyo where he's going to try to make his way in the world um he's uh caught he goes by boat he's caught in a rainstorm he's saved by uh uh, suga is his name he gives uh he actually gives um uh well his first i guess it goes uh hodaka i'm looking here it's like hodaka uh, morishima is is the boy's name 
Uh, he gives his, his business card. Eventually, Hodaka goes to work for him. He's having a hard time, um, um, you know, making his way in, uh, in Tokyo, trying to find a job. Um, there's a, a scene where he's um, uh, sitting in a McDonald's and he meets uh, a Hina. Hina Amano is the character's name. Uh, an employee at McDonald's uh, kind of feels sorry for him, brings him a, a Big Mac to eat for free. Um, and Hodeka says it's the best, or, uh, it's the best meal he's ever had. But anyway, he ends up, um, he finds this, uh, a handgun in a waste, uh, you know, in a trash can and, um, not sure if it's real or not. That figures into the movie. Eventually he goes to work for Suga. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he kind of, um, is, is making his way. He's, he's getting, he's making his way through, but then he eventually starts a friendship up with the young girl, Hina. He saves her. Uh, she lost her job at McDonald's and, um, she needs to make ends meet because we find out that she's living by herself with her younger brother. Uh, the two of them are, are sort of by themselves in this town as well. Um, uh, so uh, Hodaka is, is um, you know, he befriends her and he, he, he saves her uh, from what could have been a pretty awful life uh, for her. Um, uses the gun, uh, actually, to save her. Um, and uh, But during their friendship, he finds out that she can control the weather. And what's happening is Tokyo is just being inundated with rain. It is nonstop rain to the point that it's just every day it's raining. So they start a business and um, he uses uh, Hina to uh, control the weather and to bring sunshine. They so hires it out to, to different groups and to different people who want sunshine. And it's only in a small area that she can control it, but the sun shines through. And now that, you know, people can go out and play and, and, and businesses can, you know, they can have outdoor gatherings and whatnot, um, you know, while that's happening. But then Hina sort of uh, reveals to Hodaka that um, there's there's a price that she's paying for being able to control the weather, and that is that she um, feels as if she's dying. Uh, so then you have this whole thing of Hodaka trying to figure out a way to keep her around, um, you know, with with uh, and the whole idea is that the rain will eventually stop um, in Tokyo, and it's just been like months of rain the entire summer. It has rained if Hina is out of the picture. Um, and it story sort of takes off from there. I'm not going to go any further with it than that. Uh, again, beautifully animated. This is a beautiful movie. It really is. Uh, and that seems to be, um, trying to, uh, uh, Shinkai it seems to be a, um, a trait with him, you know, like a characteristic that his movies are always beautiful and really vibrant and bring these landscapes to life in a big way. But again, and, and again, it's fantasy, you know, you've got this girl who can control the weather. And they start a business around it. And the, and the whole idea is, you know, that, that um, uh, you know, she's tied into this. Uh, it almost like, I don't know if it's a curse or something with with the, the reason there's the rain is because of her. So you have this fantasy, but yet very realistic. These characters, we never really learn why Hodaka ran away. We don't learn that about his character. Uh, we And Hina and her brother are living by themselves. I mean, we learn a little bit about, you know, their backstory, but. It's just these 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 young characters really kind of beaten down, and, and Hodaka's homeless for a while. He's living on the streets, um, so you have that realism. You, there, there's again, just like in your name, there's that level of realism in this world of fantasy that grounds it. 
you know, and makes it more uh, believable in a way, um, you know, that, that you kind of buy the fantasy because the characters themselves are so grounded in living in, um, the, you know, this this very sort of sad, um, uh, sad existence that they have. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing about the movie, though, is that it never feels, uh, except when it particularly wants to, it never feels particularly heavy or sad, you know, particularly right. in the early going. It finds that you have that that world where it's raining all the time, and this is where I am kind of reminded of uh, Ray Bradbury's short stories, like the, I think it was called All Summer Than a Day, where they now lived on uh, Venus and it rained constantly so much so that they live in underground bunkers. And then one day for an hour, every seven years, they get to have the sunshine and it's not quite like that here, but he plays off of some of those same kind of themes. And you have these figures who can give and provide this, this, this uh, power. And instead of looking at it in a very mythological way, he looks at it in a pragmatic way. What if you could run a business off of the ability to give people sunshine? And those right. parts are funny and they're, they're charming and you get that disarming area where you have this relationship that he's building and the structure is very similar to your name in that there's a thing that sort of happens that changes the tone and changes the story and where there were minimal or lower stakes. Now there were higher stakes and there's yes. more of your traditional uh, adventure story, much like your name where now Here's something that's a little more plot driven. And he finds a very interesting way to give you character driven first and then plot driven. But at that point, you care about what happens to those characters. And the plot's mm -hmm. a lot of fun. You know, there's a lot of fun to be had. There's, again, there's a, there's a, some weirdness. Uh, one of the strange things is uh, her little brother is like a uh, like a grade school player. You know, he seems he's like, like a Casanova. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's in a point that he's able to, he wants to get, he wants to get to his, he wants to be able to get out and, you know, he feels like he's, he's basically being kind of like, uh, uh, imprisoned in a sense, you know, they're keeping him in this area and he wants to be able to get out and help everyone. And so he, he even coerces one of the little girls to give him her clothes so he can escape. <laughs> yes. So, you know, little touches like that are very interesting. And even, even the like kind of, uh. The relationship he strikes up with these two people who he meets and he's working for early on, you know, uh, the the it's interesting how you had kind of alluded to it, it skirts those levels of darkness, like the 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 situation she almost finds herself in that he rescues her from. Mm -hmm. You know, it's clear yep. to us as you're watching that, particularly if you're an older viewer, that you know what's happening, but. You know, right. someone else watching it may not quite pick up on exactly what's happening there. But the people who run the uh, almost like this uh, paranormal tabloid that <laughs> that story itself, I could have watched a whole series based off of just those three characters doing that job yes. out of that that place. And I think that's what's fascinating about the movie. Uh, yeah. And a lot of ways, I, I think I like your name a little bit better. I like the story beats a little bit. I feel they're a little bit stronger. Uh, this one does start to become even more into the plot. You know, it becomes a little more of an, of an adventure movie where I kind of, kind of feel of where it's headed, but it doesn't really make it any less wonderful. And there are points here where suddenly you find there's a tone that like, Hey, this is a kind of a darker tone. I mean, if the movie had ended at one point with the fate of Japan, I was thinking, Oh my gosh, really it's it's really funny because i one of the things that 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 really did strike me about this movie and i do agree with you i think your name is on a level 
uh, a little bit above weathering weathering with you. It, just like with Miyazaki, yeah, um, you have Spirited Away and then you have um, other movies that you love, Kiki's Delivery Service and Castle in the Sky and all the other ones. They're brilliant, but they're not quite Spirited Away. I think that's the same with Weathering with, with You. It's a really great movie, but it's not quite your name. And he's always going to have that sort of comparison, I think. And it's a shame. And it's, it's kind of sad that that's happening because Weathering with You... I loved it. I really did. But you've got these characters who are almost forced to be adults because they're like, like, yeah, like Hina's the caretaker and Hadaka is living on his own and he's got to find a job. So they're forced to be adults. But yet, and I don't want to give it away, you have an ending where it's an ending that a, would be from a child's perspective, the right thing to do. It's something that I think a lot of people are going to look and say, and it kind of goes against uh, I was thinking about it. it kind of goes against Mr. Spock's ending in Wrath of Khan that the the needs of the few or the needs yes. of the many outweigh the needs of the few. You don't get that ending here. You get something that they're approaching it from something like the selfishness almost of a child. Um, but yet it still feels satisfying and satisfying for the characters, you know, where they were forced to be adults and now they have this, the, the ending and Okay. It, it's it's something that's not for the betterment of everyone, but it's satisfying for these characters. It works for these characters who have, who have, who have been, who are really children who were forced to be adults and now they're being kids again. And one of the things that's interesting though, is that instead of it just being something we as the audience are aware of say, oh, there's something wrong with this ending. The Sh Shinkei does actually sort of highlight that. You know, I think that's the sign of the maturity of the storyline that he does leave it for you to realize that this isn't exactly balanced or this isn't yeah. the, like you said, perfectly looking out for everybody's interests. And it reminds me of something that I read, uh, minor spoilers here if, if you guys haven't seen the movie Minority Report, but, and it won't be very, <laughs> very minor, but in, you've seen Minority Report, right, Dave? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and it's a great film. It's honestly, I think one of Spielberg's best movies. Honestly, even even with all these mm -hmm. done, but when you the end of that film has, a, you know, most Spielberg movies do has a semblance of a happy ending that certain characters have been freed of of their imprisonment. And the original cut of that film, something I've heard Spielberg had struck from it. The last line there was a title card that pops up and says there were insert a certain number, a certain number of murders in the district of Columbia that year, you know? And mm. if you know the plot of this film that deals with these empaths who are able to predict these murders and you know where the story goes, that one line, that's, that's, that's the, that's showing the other side of the coin, right? The other side of the balance yes. in order for me to have my happy ending. This also happens here. And I kind of think that maybe it wouldn't have been a bad thing for Spielberg to leave that in. And I think Shinke finds a way to do something similar here in a more mature way. Honestly, if I'm if I'm being honest, you know, he mm -hmm. finds the way to give you the happy ending and let you think about what it means for everybody else. Yeah, I agree with you. I I think that would have been an awesome uh, uh, final card, and it's a shame that was taken out of Minority Report. I didn't even know about that. That would have been great. But this movie goes there. This movie gives you that and shows you, yes, like you're saying, it shows you that uh, whereas we're happy for the characters, you know, there's a lot of other people <laughs> who were affected by uh, by the ending of this movie. Yeah, and I, I think that's why why this sort of does 
does work and feels fully fleshed out. This does not feel like a work for children or, uh, and it also doesn't feel like a movie that's purposely trying to be edgy or adult. It, it It's very specifically telling the story it wants to tell. And then that that's kind of it. And again, the animation, just like the other one is beautiful. They really capture the sunshine and the rain, you know, both, both emotionally and metaphorically. And then, and and literally, uh, you 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 feel the rain, like you feel, like you feel like the dampness and everything. And then in the scenes where there is sun, it's just brilliant and vibrant, and it just picks your spirits up, you know, for the characters that hey, now they're out in the sun. Um, it it's just it it really is just a, a again a great example that's showing that. Um, and I read it somewhere where where um you know there has there was someone who had said that um uh you know uh, uh Makado Shinke is um the the next Miyazaki and and I think you can you get that sense and I don't know that there can be a next Miyazaki I don't think that's fair even to him to make a comparison like that because they are different they they do have different sort of feels and styles in their films but as far as the level he's working on I think it's I think it's fitting and the fact that he's only so many movies into his career I can't wait to see. He's now on the radar, and I can't wait to see what his next movie is going to be. Yeah, and actually some of the ones that we haven't talked about, The Garden of Words, and again, The Place Promised in Our Early Days, these are good movies too. They aren't maybe quite at the level of these two, but it's like you're saying, this is a guy who's continually improving, and they're they're all good movies in their own right, and they all are character-based. You, you know, I haven't seen him do anything yet that I haven't felt... You know, hey, this really is a is a work of art, and it's and it and the characters are driving it. Uh, what's your rating yeah. on this one, Dave? I'm gonna say I'm gonna give it a nine. I really did love it the first time I saw it. It again, it's not your name, but that's not a fair comparison. I don't think it's trying to be your name. You know, it's not trying to be it. That it's a different type of film, a different story that is telling. I'm gonna say nine out of ten, and it's a definite. Uh, Definite viewing. Definite. We'll see it if you can. And I'd even say like watch them on successive nights. I don't know if they're going to make a great one, two, like sitting as a double feature in a, in a single view, you know, single sitting, but watch them over a course of two nights like I did. And I think um, you'll really take something away from both of these movies. Yeah. And they are longer films too. They are. So they, yes. you know, it's going to be a long night of viewing if you do watch them both back to back, but they're, they're very good. Uh, yeah. For me, that's kind of an 8.5, but I think, you know, nine is, 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 is fair. And again, I, I don't see it as a lesser film in any way uh, per se. It's just that one of them, I do think is a little bit stronger, but they're all mm-hmm. working at all of his films are working at this level of they're satisfying in and of themselves. You know, we, you know, as yeah. critics, you, you end up, maybe justly or unjustly comparing things here or there. There are minor things about this that I don't quite like just as much as the other movie, but it is a success in and of itself, you know, and yep. it would be regardless of whether the other movie existed or not. So, um, yeah, I, I think that it's, um, it's fantastic. And if I don't need it, I could just cut it out. So, um, no anything problem. else you wanted to, to say about this? I, I think that we probably, uh, we will probably definitely do a follow up Shinkei episode and maybe catch some of his, um, his, his other films. And in fact, you know what I think I will do, uh, because I'm on the, I'm on the, I'm up on the plate to pick the short films this time. 
I think that one of them that I will will choose will be, and I guess we can kind of go in. Is there anything else you want to say about uh, either of these films, Dave? No, I, I think that's, I think we've pretty much said it all. It's just, I, I definitely uh, watch them, definitely see both of them. That's that, that, you know, that's all I, I can't say it enough. I think you're going to really in, um, be, it's a mesmerizing experience to watch the, each of these films. And if you're someone who isn't necessarily, who's okay with not having the physical media and is okay buying like, you know, a digital copy of a film that right now on Amazon, your name, you can buy your name for four ninety nine. Uh, I think I don't. I think you can rent it if the rental place is three ninety nine. Trust me, just go ahead and spend the extra dollar. Uh, this movie, this would be worth going ahead and buying if it was ten dollars more, or you know, whatever. But yes. definitely for four ninety nine, I would just buy the film because I strongly suspect this is a movie that once you see it, you're gonna want to see it again at some point, even if Absolutely. it isn't immediately. And you might find it might be in the next couple days. But uh, yeah, they're they're both very good. I think um, I'm going to pick a short film and I think we might, I think we might keep it to one short film because it is a longer one. Um, if you're good okay. with that this time, Dave, yeah. and I think we've got some good films coming up. I'll let you share in a moment, but I'm going to go with voices of a distant star by Shinkei because I, uh, it, it does involve war, which is going to be, I'll announce now that our, our theme for the next episode is war and what animators have done with the concept of war. And while this is a science fiction film and also a relational drama, it deals with the fallout of, of war and what that means for the people who go away and the people who stay. And I think it would be really fun to look at that, uh, considering that I believe that is his start. That's his first film. And, uh, it isn't as long, but it's still it's still I think in the forty minute or so range. So it's uh it's not like uh, ten or fifteen minutes. So I think that'll that'll be good, and we'll just keep with the one. And then Dave, do you want to go ahead and announce the two movies for next time? Absolutely, the two featured uh, films we'll be looking at. Again, the theme is war. We're going to be looking at Waltz with Bashir from two thousand and eight, uh, and Funan from 2018 exactly exactly 10 years later um those will be the uh the two movies and they're both um they're both set uh, during wartime yeah and i've seen waltz with bashir and it's a really interesting movie i think it'll be really yeah. interesting to look at waltz with bashir in relation to ryan that we saw this time because you know there's an element of waltz with bashir where you're seeing real life and then adapted by animation and adapted in such a yeah. way where the real and the and the fantastical are sort of hand in hand to hit the emotional spot yep absolutely and i haven't seen the the other movie but i'm really looking forward to seeing it and i think it'll be interesting to kind of juxtapose these which are very much about real world wars and war zones and then with a film that is dealing with a fantastical or a a kind of sci-fi element where this isn't a real battle and yet you know the the artist can kind of put himself in the frame of mind to show the same sort of fallout the same sort of human toll and uh what what that does yeah awesome so dave i want to give a, a moment for you to go ahead and uh tell us where uh, they where everyone can find you the the multiple myriad places and I know you have something really fun that you've uh, uh, you've got coming up for this month uh, that's happening and I want you to kind of just take a, minute, a couple minutes if you will and and talk about that as well. Oh sure. Um, 
Well, it's it's uh, at my blog, dvdinfatuation.com, um, which uh, I had reviewed 2,500 movies starting in 2010. Uh, but I'm trying something do, uh, different for uh, March. Uh, and um, I'm looking at the movies of uh, Nicholas Ray. One of the things I noticed as I looked over my 2,500 movies, uh, 2,500 plus movies that I reviewed, I didn't look at any of Nicholas Ray's films. I did not review a single one of them. Uh, so uh, I decided one of the things I always wanted to do was was talk about a director, pick a director and just sort of look at all of his films or at least a, a large majority of his films, like or a big chug, like 15 to 18 titles somewhere in that neighborhood and just sort of mass review them, just sort of, uh, you know, write them out in, 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 in one big chunk. And I'm doing that in March. I'm looking at the films of Nicholas Ray. Um, and um, going everything, you know, starting from, um, you know, They Live by Night, his first movie, uh, all the way up to Lightning, um, you know, Lightning Over Water, which uh, is uh, basically a movie about his death and, uh, you know, presents uh, presents uh, his death. Uh, you see his almost last mo- uh, moments in that movie. And Nicholas Ray is just such an interesting character. I'm reading a book right now by his daughter, Nika Ray called Ray on Ray. And she never knew her father. Her father was out of the picture when she was very young, only sporadically entered her life. She never felt like she got to know him and decided to try to find out about him through his movies and found that she was finding out about her, her father through his movies. Um, so that's something that I'm going to be, I'm, I'm reading that book and, um, and I'm, uh, watching his movies and reviewing them. And I'm going to be presenting all of them. I think it's 18 movies in, in total. And they're all going to be um, throughout March uh, posting about all of the, you know, the Nicholas Ray films that I'm watching. Again, that's at dvdinfatuation.com. Um, I also am on Twitter at dvdinfatuation. Uh, I have, a, I'm on Facebook as well. And on Instagram, I have a letterboxd account. I have my YouTube channel. You could check out uh, some older videos on there now, but I hope the Put some new ones out in the near future uh, and other podcasts. I am on um, Land of the Creeps, of course, with uh, Greg Amortis and uh, and Big Bill Van Vagel, your co-host on Phantom Galaxy and uh, the horror movie podcast uh, with um, uh, Gilman Joel and Wolfman Josh. And of course, I have my own podcast, DVD Infatuation, which you can find on Considering the Cinema. Uh, Jay of the Dead, Jason Piles has uh, been um, kind enough to edit that for me and put that out on a monthly basis. Uh, episode seven is the newest one released. Um, and I talk about Nicholas Ray at the, at the beginning of that episode, um, along with some other things. Um, so you could check that out. It's going to be, epi- I have seven episodes of the DVD infatuation podcast out already. And that again, that is at considering the cinema.com. Yeah, and I love that series. Every every episode you put out so far has been great. So if you're someone who's Thank hearing you. this and hasn't listened to any of it yet, go over there and check it out. Uh, Dave covers all kinds of things. I really enjoy your your top lists where you you've done lists of directors of uh, female actors and male actors. You've done. Uh, I also enjoy the top tens of the year. You, you did one that I really loved for I think uh, the top films of. 98 right 1998 90 yep 1998 yeah i did do uh, i did that and also um coming up this next time i have an, another interesting list it's not of a year but i have another interesting list that um that, that i do for in episode seven but uh well thank you i really appreciate that thank you very much i'm glad you enjoyed it. and i'd love to hear uh, other people you know if you if you've heard it please uh please let me know if um you know uh, if you like it, let me know some of the movies um, in those uh, lists that I give. If you have any that I don't mention, 
uh, I'd like to hear that as well. Yeah, and I'm 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 humbled listening to the list of podcasts and things that you do that you agreed to do this one as well oh, because you're a, you're a busy guy, Dave. Well, yeah, I, but I love it because I get to, I get to actually go outside the horror yeah, genre. That's true, <laughs> and, and that's what's cool too about uh, the DVD Infatuation podcast. You really get to see the the breadth and the depth of of Dave's knowledge and his his love of film. So, uh, and again, thank you for doing this. I really enjoy it. I uh, I think that we again we had some great titles here. I'm looking forward to next time. And yes. yeah, that is the Illustrated Fan episode two closing out. And have a great night, everyone. Take care. Thanks. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.